DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Georgia Today podcast from GPB News. Today is Friday, April 28th. I'm Peter Biello. On today's episode, Georgia's first two medical cannabis dispensaries are officially open for business. Both Atlanta and Tybee Island are preparing for large crowds this weekend, and the NFL draft was last night, and Georgia was well represented. These stories and more are coming up on this edition of Georgia Today. Georgia's first two medical cannabis dispensaries opened this morning. Supplier TrueLeave says its first customer in the state was a 20-year-old man in Macon who suffered from daily seizures until he started taking cannabis oil. TrueLeave CEO Kim Rivers says the beginning of medical sales in Georgia signals relief for the state's more than 26,000 patients currently registered to receive it. We're excited and we are feel that it's an incredible um, you know, moment for uh, Georgia patients who have been waiting so long um, for this medication to, have, to, to be able to access this medication and then also a sense of responsibility. You know, whenever um, we have the privilege of, of entering a market and certainly when we are in a position to be able to open up that market, um, there is an incredible responsibility that goes along with that. And so we are, uh, again, have a, a really positive outlook um, and really excited to, to be able to bring uh, quality products to folks who've been waiting, waiting for it. The new stores in Macon and Marietta come eight years after state lawmakers first moved to legalize medical cannabis. Georgia is one of the last states in the nation to do so. TrueLeave says it plans to open stores in Columbus, Noonan, and Pooler soon. The only other company so far licensed to grow and distribute medical cannabis in the state, Botanical Sciences, also says it's very close to opening dispensaries. The Georgia Department of Community Health is distributing millions of additional dollars this year to support essential health care providers, but how well these payments work isn't clear yet. GPB's Sophie Gratis explains. DCH says the state has already started dispersing $1 billion and an expansion of Medicaid funds earmarked to go straight to health care providers. On Thursday, Grady Health System announced it will build two new outpatient facilities in Fulton County using these funds. The $1 billion in directed payments frees up another $100 million to be shared by rural hospitals to cover losses from uncompensated care. But federal oversight offices report a general lack of transparency in measuring how well these directed payments improve access to care overall, or whether they're spent as providers promise. Meanwhile, many hospital leaders in Georgia say a full expansion of Medicaid insurance coverage, which the state has not yet taken up, would improve overall outcomes for patients and help hospitals struggling to stay open. For GPB News, I'm Sophie Gratis. Also in health news, Atlanta's Grady Health System plans to open two new outpatient centers to address health care needs following the closure of two Wellstar facilities. Grady plans to open the sites in Atlanta, south of Interstate 20, later this year. Last year, Wellstar Health System came under fire for closing two nearby hospitals. Milledgeville officials say they've turned a corner on restoring water to the city. A pump failure had left some residents, businesses, and schools without water since Tuesday. City manager Hank Griffith says a replacement pump was expected today, and pressure is rising, but a boil water advisory continues. We will be testing, pulling some samples. Uh, We will test those in our lab at the water treatment plant. They have to incubate for 24 hours, and at that point in time, if all all the samples come back clear, we will rescind it uh, then. But the boil water advisory is... is, um, it's sometimes difficult to deal with from a customer standpoint, 
but it is something that we do just to make sure that there was no uh, type of bacterial growth in the lines while there was no water running through them. Milledgeville gave out more than 2,000 cases of water over two days. Baldwin County High School also went to virtual learning for two days while the water was out. Those classes returned to normal today. Tybee Island is bracing for another potentially large gathering this weekend. This comes after Tybee saw an estimated 40 to 50,000 people last weekend during the popular spring break party known as Orange Crush. GPB's Benjamin Payne reports. Tybee Island Mayor Shirley Sessions doesn't have an estimate as to how many people may show up for what is being called Peach Fest, but she says there will be a bigger police presence on Tybee than there was last weekend when roughly 75 officers and code enforcement personnel patrolled the island. Some people will probably think we're doing too much. I don't think so. This is a problem bigger than Tybee now. This is extended into our neighboring communities because of the traffic and because there were parties going on in Savannah and in the Chatham County area. Sessions says city attorneys are exploring ways to limit access to the public beach for future events. For GPB News, I'm Benjamin Payne. The University of Georgia football player involved in a crash that killed a teammate was selected in the first round of the NFL draft last night. Defensive tackle Jalen Carter was selected ninth overall by the Philadelphia Eagles. Carter says the Eagles never really asked him about the January wreck that killed teammate Devin Willick and football recruiting staffer Chandler LaCroix. The University of Georgia ended up with three players chosen in the first round after the Eagles also picked edge rusher Nolan Smith with the 30th pick and the Pittsburgh Steelers acquired defensive tackle Broderick Jones with the 14th pick. Former Georgia Tech running back Jameer Gibbs, who transferred to Alabama before last season, was selected 12th by the Detroit Lions. Gibbs is from Dalton, Georgia. Hampton, Georgia native Will Anderson Jr. was selected by the Houston Texans. The Cincinnati Bengals selected Clemson edge rusher Miles Murphy from Marietta with the 28th pick. And in a bit of a surprise move, the Atlanta Falcons selected running back B. John Robinson from the University of Texas with the 8th pick overall. The draft continues tonight with 2 through 7 throughout the weekend. In January, protester Manuel Tehran was shot multiple times by police in the South River Forest in Atlanta. Police say they fired first. Tehran was among many protesters who had been camping there for months to demonstrate opposition to the planned public safety training center that protesters call Cop City. After Tehran's death, at least two autopsies that we know of were performed, one by the DeKalb County Medical Examiner and another by the GBI. What they reveal offers some insights into what happened, but a complete explanation of the events of that January day is still elusive. For a little context on what has been revealed, we turn to Michael Moore. He's a former U.S. attorney and partner at Moore Hall in Atlanta. Thank you very much for speaking with me. It's a pleasure, Peter. Thank you. How common is it in a case like this for two or maybe more autopsies to be performed? Well, uh, it's not uncommon really at all. Uh, Oftentimes you'll see, especially uh, in cases where there's been a police shooting, that you'll see an official autopsy done. Sometimes you'll see second autopsies uh, done by families uh, who are uh, still searching for answers uh, and explanations uh, into what exactly happened. You may also find that you have, in this case, for instance, you have the DeKalb County Medical Examiner who uh, performed the autopsy and then certain analysis then done by the uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. So, you know, having that type of collaboration in investigations is, is not uncommon at all. I see. And how much variation could one expect between two will assume two competent uh, medical examiners looking at the same at the same body. Can we expect a lot of variation? 
with competent uh, medical examiners uh, and pathologists, um, while some of the initial and maybe the visual aspects may be different, they could both be valid. Uh, you just may have some different interpretations. I wanted to ask you about some of what's been discussed in the public already with respect to gunshot residue, because the DeKalb County Medical Examiner wrote on the report, gunshot residue is not seen on the hands. But they also did mention that the investigative agency would look at the hands. The GBI did find a few particles of gunshot residue. So what do you make of those two findings? Well, I think that it's standard law enforcement investigation, and I really didn't find anything that uh, was particularly alarming with the discrepancy of the findings. And all you have to do is look at the two different reports and exactly what was done. If you looked at the DeKalb County Medical Examiner's report, Dr. Gowett noted... You were referring to uh, DeKalb County Medical Examiner, Dr. Gerald Gowett. That's correct. The hands uh, of the individual were bagged. That's a standard practice by uh, law enforcement agencies when there's been a shooting. He's not doing a what I would call the forensic test for gunshot residue. He actually notes in his report that those tests, a gunshot residue test, was done and turned over to the GBI for analysis. In other words, it's not always possible to see with the naked eye gunshot residue. So saying you didn't see it is one thing, but then sending it to a different agency that uses technology to really zoom in is an entirely different thing, and those two things can coexist. They coexist, and it's really entirely appropriate to do that, uh, to send it and have and have those uh, swabs examined. Dr. Gowett's job was really to determine the manner and cause of death. Uh, it's not to get into the analysis necessarily of did this person fire a gun at the responding law enforcement officers. One other thing, Worth correcting, because I know there's been some misunderstanding about this. In in the report by uh, the DeKalb County Medical Examiner, there were 57 gunshot wounds. The the same bullet can enter and exit and possibly re-enter, causing uh, many different wounds. So I just want to clarify that. That's exactly right. I mean, there's um, Dr. Dr. Gowett notes a number of uh, bullet wounds, but the same bullet can pass through multiple places on the body. Uh, to to cause a, a number of additional uh, entry wounds. So if you think about this in terms of someone being shot in the arm and it passing through the arm and entering the person's body, well, that's two entrance wounds, uh, but with done by one bullet. And so it, it's difficult to determine uh, from a medical examiner's point of view uh, how many uh, actual shots were fired. That's done again by forensics and crime scene analysis and uh, evidence, actual physical evidence collected at the scene, um, reports, uh, shooting incident reports, those types of things to determine how many rounds were, were actually fired. But, but one bullet can certainly cause more than one entrance wound. What does the release of this type of information do to an investigation? Is, is it compromised in any way because this information is now public? Well, it can be. And so there's there is really a uh, sort of a general rule and in, in the state bar governs uh, rules about from for prosecutors uh, about what information can and cannot be put out in the public domain during a, a in investigation like this. And it's really about and the purpose behind the rules is about maintaining public confidence in an investigation. And so uh, sort of piecemeal or, you know, Drib drab information sort of dropping out uh, is is not an ideal situation because 
you know, one report may say one thing and another report seems to say something, but when read together, they're not inconsistent. However, if you don't have that opportunity to look at them together, you may think that one, uh, you know, sort of has information that may be particularly important in a case, and then you find out it's not. So piecemealing information out is not always a good practice. And I think typically, uh, you know, good prosecutors make sure they don't do that. Mm -hmm. So we are now more than three months out from the killing of Manuel Tehran. What at this stage are prosecutors likely to be doing as they seek answers? Well, we really have have this autopsy report uh, completed by Dr. Gowett, and I think it's just been a matter of a few weeks, actually, since it was finalized. I think he signed off on it sometime, if I'm correct, uh, about the middle of March. Um, and at that point, the complete case file, uh, including uh, the shooting reports, the reconstructions, the witness statements, and now the autopsy reports and uh, chemical analysis, those types of things, that whole file is presented to a prosecutor to review. And he or she will take their time to make sure that they understand the evidence that's in front of them, to understand what witnesses that were who were on the scene have said about the case, and then how that compares to the physical evidence that they would have available to present or to consider uh, as they make decisions about whether or not they should present criminal charges to a grand jury. So all the lawyers involved, whether it's on the government side or on the civil side, would be doing a really deep dive into this now complete case file. Well, Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney and partner at Moore Hall in Atlanta, thank you so much for providing a little context. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Peter. Atlanta has a new monument and garden celebrating and honoring the legacy of civil rights activist Coretta Scott King. They were dedicated yesterday on what would have been her 96th birthday. They sit on the grounds of the King Center in Atlanta, which King founded in 1968 to memorialize the life, work, legacy, and commitment to nonviolence of her husband, slain civil rights leader, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The monument was created by artist Saya Wolfolk. This weekend, Atlanta plays host to three sold-out Taylor Swift concerts at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Huge crowds are expected, and tonight will be especially busy in the area, as just a short walk away from the Benz, Janet Jackson is playing a near-sold-out show at State Farm Arena. While official numbers have not been released, we know that the concert capacity at State Farm Arena is close to 17,000, and the concert capacity at Mercedes-Benz is more than 80,000. And that is not counting ticket takers, security officers, popcorn vendors, Uber drivers, stagehands, and everyone else needed to put on a large concert. That math there is enough to give any traffic planner a headache. So yeah, raise your hand if you are legit scared to attempt to drive anywhere near that area this evening. Yeah, me too. And that's it for this edition of Georgia Today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about these stories, visit gpb.org news. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast because we've got some fascinating conversations coming your way next week. We're going to have more on the NFL draft, for example, and Georgia connections to it. I'm also going to speak with the hosts of the Prison Town podcast. That's a podcast that looks at systemic problems inside the Georgia Department of Corrections through the lens of one particularly troubled facility. Again, that podcast is Prison Town, and I'll speak with the hosts next week. If you've got feedback on this podcast, we'd love to hear it. Email us. The address is georgiatoday at gpb.org. I'm Peter Biello. Have a great weekend. We'll be back with you on Monday.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.